So for our sermon today, we're going to be picking up where we left off, or just a a few verses forward from where we left off. I'll kind of refresh our our memories here a little bit. We started last week a series on 1 Peter, so we're continuing in that. We're still going to be in chapter 1. Our passage today will be 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13, and we'll be going through to chapter 2 verse 3. And you may have picked up, even listening to all the songs, the theme of holiness that came up in all of those songs. That's going to be uh, our focus for this sermon. Uh, that's the focus of this passage in First Peter. I mentioned actually last week, as you may remember, maybe not, but one of the core central themes of this letter that, that Peter wrote is that of living holy lives. And so that's what we're going to take a look at. That's what we're going to talk about today. Living holy, upright, pure lives. And before we get into the passage itself, and we'll, of course, read through it all. We'll go through verse by verse as we do. I'll kind of interject at various points as we read through and then, of course, apply what we've learned. But before we get into that, I first want to sort of speak to the state of the American evangelical church. And certainly as you think of the church throughout history and the church in various parts of the world at various times and in different places the church has sort of natural strengths but maybe also natural weaknesses as well and those can sort of shift and change in different parts of the world or as time progresses and as i think of the american evangelical church and as i think of the american church in our time today i would say that living holy lives is probably not one of our strong suits, but rather quite the opposite, that generally speaking, I'm not saying just New Hope Chapel. In fact, I would say actually New Hope Chapel is maybe a little bit in a good way here, sort of goes contrary to the general rule of the American evangelical church. I think we're doing pretty well in this regard. But generally speaking, for the American evangelical church, there's a real struggle and weakness in regard to living holy lives, those holy, pure, upright, obedient lives. Uh, And honestly, it's pretty obvious, it's pretty clear. In all reality, uh, most Christians in our country look pretty much just like the rest of those who aren't believers who live all around us. We could easily just sort of fit in and, and we could live our lives and people who are close to us, our neighbors, our coworkers may not even be aware of the fact that, that we're Christians. And the truth is, we ought to look awfully different from, from the world around us. We should be living in a fundamentally different, fundamentally Christ-like holy way that that ought to stand out. You should be able to sort of pick us out of a lineup just by the way we live our lives. You should be able to spot us from a mile away as Christians, and yet all too often we look just like the world around us. And you can look at all the numbers, all the stats, whether you look at the issue of divorce, and it's rampant in in our country, it's rampant in the church. The church isn't doing much better than the world around us. Or you look at the issue of pornography, again, rampant in the church and the world around us as well. We're doing pretty much the same as as those around us, not really living our holy lives. Uh, You even look at the reality that, if we're honest, you know, we're rather selfish creatures here in the evangelical American church. We're selfish creatures as fallen human beings, but I think that's sort of a reality that we're sort of driven by selfish desires, again, looking just like the rest of the world around us rather than sort of self-sacrificially giving ourselves for others. We're driven by greed and a desire for money. And I'm not saying everybody wants to be billionaires and be loaded, but, but many within the church are driven by a desire for money, to have enough money so you can live a comfortable life and have all of the things we might view of as necessities, but in reality, they're luxuries. 
Again, just it, it, we look like the world around us. Many in the church, we lie like the world around us. We cheat. We do all the same things that the people around us. And that's, that's tragic, but I think that's sort of an honest assessment. I'm not saying we're not doing a little better than the world around us. But an honest assessment is that this isn't exactly a high point in sort of in regard to holiness in the life of the church throughout history. I would say this is sort of a, a low point, a valley. This is not one of our strong suits. It doesn't mean we don't have areas where we're strong as the American evangelical church, but this would be an area of weakness, living holy lives. And I think part of what that flows out of is I think something that, that in a sense is good but can have negative consequences when we have sort of a singular focus on it. And I'd say the American church uh, for quite some time now has been very driven in regard to uh, getting people saved, right? Getting out there, sharing the gospel. I know we often struggle in doing that, but it's something the evangelical church holds up as a, as a great value, and rightfully so. That's good. That's wonderful. Uh, it should be that way, where we want to be out there and sharing the gospel, giving people the opportunity to respond with repentance and faith and be forgiven and saved. But I would say that that has become sort of the singular focus, in a sense, oftentimes for the American evangelical church. It's just, we just got to get out there. We got to get people to pray that prayer, make that decision for Christ, get saved. And then it sort of just ends with that. That's sort of the priority. Now they're saved, good, you know. Yes, there would be a desire to see them live obedient lives, holy lives to the Lord. But hey, as long as they have saving faith in Christ, they're forgiven, they're saved, they're good for eternity. And that has sort of become the singular focus of the American evangelical church. It, it, rather than saying that needs to be a priority, it should be, but we don't want to lose sight of this other important matter, which is that now that we are saved through faith in Christ as a gracious gift, now we should be living faithful, obedient, holy lives. It should be sort of the natural outflow. Now that we've come to saving faith in Christ, we're, we're, we're made new, we're a new creation in Christ, and so what should we be doing? We should be out there living these faithful, obedient, holy lives unto the Lord. Right, so that, that, that I would say is a struggle in, in the American evangelical church. There's sort of this priority on, on, on and prioritization of justification, and rightfully so, but sort of losing sight of sanctification, that we should be growing in holiness, we should be living these obedient, faithful, holy lives to the Lord. It doesn't have to be one or the other, but rather both should be held up and prioritized in the life of the church. Going out there, sharing the gospel, seeing people come to faith in Christ, but now saying, now that we belong to the Lord, here's what we should be doing. God cares about our sanctification. He cares about us growing in that faithfulness and obedience and holiness and holding that up as a priority as well. Not either or, but both. And so I'd say that that's sort of how we've gotten here as the American evangelical church, by sort of losing sight of that. And so I want to make that a priority. But again, speaking to New Hope Chapel specifically, I'd say we don't maybe fit in with the average American evangelical church in this regard, and I'd say in a good way. I think here at New Hope Chapel, we, we hold up both. We say, yeah, we, we need to go out there. We know we struggle with it, but we need to be out there sharing the gospel, leading people to faith in Christ. But we don't say then it ends there. We hold up that other priority as well and say, we do want to live faithful, obedient, holy lives. We want to glorify God and honor him day in and day out in how we live. We want to progress in sanctification, grow in holiness, and make that a priority. But nonetheless, even if that is a priority here, that doesn't mean that, that there isn't room for growth. The reality is we still all have sin in our lives, and, and we should be seeking day after day to, to be rid of that sin and grow in holiness. And so this is a, a great topic for us to talk about. And so now let's get in there, look at 1 Peter. I just wanted to sort of speak to the setting in which we are as, as, as 
a church here in, in America, the evangelical church now, and sort of give a sense of the lay of the land in our context. But let's read now 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 13. And Peter writes and says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. You may remember that verse from, from last week. We talked about this as we were sort of talking about First Peter as a whole, kind of getting a sense of the context, who's writing this, who, who's, and that's Peter, of course, who's he writing to? And so we spoke to this passage and how it shows that, that realistically, predominantly, Peter was writing to a predominantly Gentile Christian audience here. But what is he saying here? He's saying, right, don't live the way you used to, whether a Gentile or, or a Jew, Though certainly for the Gentiles, what would come to mind in that day and age would have been all more sort of glaring sin that they would have been living in before coming to faith in Christ. But either way, he's saying the way you used to live, right, that worldly way, that sinful way you used to live, uh, those evil desires you used to have, right, as obedient children, don't conform to that any longer. Don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, right? We're a new creation in Christ. We, we can't be living the way we used to before we came to faith in Christ, but now as a new creation, we should be living in a new way, in an obedient, faithful, upright way, living holy, pure lives unto the Lord. And he goes on, verse 15, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that's a quote there from Leviticus chapter 11. It's in verse 44. It's also in verse 45 there of chapter 11 of Leviticus. And so Peter's referring back to that. What, what is he saying? He's saying God is holy. And we as his people, as his children, are to reflect his character. Just as he is holy, we are to be holy. And certainly we are holy as the Lord's people. We have been set apart to him and belong to him. But, but here particularly he's saying be holy in the sense of live a holy life, right? Live a holy life. Live that faithful, obedient life. Live a life that is sort of set apart from the way the rest of the world lives and live faithfully unto the Lord. Be holy just as God is holy. This is who God is. This is his character. He is a holy God and we should be reflecting that character in living holy lives as his children. And he goes on, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And notice he mentions here, live your lives as strangers, right? There's a sense in which that's, that's what we are, right? Even if you're born in America, you're an American citizen, this is where I belong. The reality is as Christians, this isn't where we belong. Our natural citizenship is in heaven with the Lord. That, that's what is home to us. And, and here on this, this earth, in this sinful world, we're, we're like strangers, we're like foreigners. And honestly, we ought to look like foreigners. We shouldn't look like the rest of the world around us. We shouldn't be living the way the rest of the world lives. We should stick out in, in a good way. And so he's saying, don't, don't just blend in and be just like everyone else, but you are strangers and, and live as strangers, looking quite different from the rest of the world around you, living those holy lives. But he also says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, li impartially live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. And, and here's what Peter has in mind. He recognizes we're all going to ultimately stand before God as judge. 
And of course, for all of us who have saving faith in Christ, we know that, that we are going to be forgiven, saved. We are going to enter into everlasting life, into God's kingdom in all its fullness and glory for all of us who have that saving faith in Christ. Uh, but, but the reality is that doesn't mean that there aren't also sort of can't be a bonus reward on top of that for faithful living. And Peter has this in mind, and he's using this as sort of an incentive for us to live holy lives. He's saying, yes, for all of us who have saving faith in Christ, we're forgiven. We're saved. We know what's in store for us in eternity. When we stand before God, yes, we're going to give an accounting for for all that we've done, but we know ultimately all of our sin, it's been paid for in Christ, we're forgiven, we're saved, we have everlasting life. But he's also saying that doesn't mean that there isn't sort of a, a secondary judgment for believers that will be in accordance with how they've lived their lives. And that's a reality. And there will be a certain bonus reward on top of heaven. We'll all have sort of the same eternity, perfect joy, peace, uh, perfect wholeness in every way. But that doesn't mean there won't be sort of this bonus reward on top in proportion to how we've lived our lives. And, and what I would say, and in fact, we see this, we're going to turn to Matthew in just a second and, and sort of see this illustrated in this passage. I would say that bonus reward is really uh, a place of honor in the kingdom. It's not like my heaven's going to be better than yours because I lived a better life or vice versa. No, we all have that same everlasting life, eternal reward. But there will be places of honor, a hierarchy of positions of honor within the kingdom. And those who've lived particularly faithfully and obediently, who've lived those holy lives, served God faithfully, honored him, they will have those sort of higher places of honor in the kingdom. And there's no place of, of shame in the kingdom, to be sure, but those who haven't lived quite so faithfully will have a lower place of honor in the kingdom. And we get a little insight into this, see a snippet of this in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 23. And I'll read it for us. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Right, so here's what's going on. You have James and John with their mother going up to Jesus saying, hey, here's what we want. We want for, 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 for James and John to have these lofty places of honor in the kingdom. That, that's what the request is, to sit at Jesus's right, to sit at his left, the two loftiest places in the kingdom after Christ that, that you could imagine that, that would exist. And Jesus doesn't respond by saying, Oh, no, you don't get it. Everything's equal. There's no sort of bonus reward or, or any, anything. There are no positions of honor. It's sort of all the same, right? In sort of our democratic republic mindset, we like things. Everything's the same, period, end of story. Jesus doesn't deny positions of honor. He doesn't say, no, you can't sit at my right and my left because nobody gets that place. Rather, he affirms that there is a special position of honor, one at his right and another at his left in the kingdom. There will be that bonus reward for those two specific individuals, whoever they are. And indeed, there are other positions of, of honor and distinction in the kingdom. He affirms that they're there. He just says, but that's not for me to grant. That, that's the father's business. He has chosen those people and those places have been prepared for them. And so we do see quite clearly that there is sort of this bonus position of, of, of honor in the kingdom. There'll be somebody who 
sits at Jesus' right, someone at his left, maybe it's John, maybe it's James, maybe it's Peter, maybe it's Paul. I don't expect it's any one of us here. I'd imagine it would be one of those great champions of the faith. But it's not just that there are two positions of honor in the kingdom, but there's clearly a whole hierarchy of that. And what Peter is doing here, he's affirming that. He's saying, yes, if you have saving faith in Christ, you have everlasting life. Yep, that, that, that's what really matters, certainly, in regard to what's in store for us in eternity. But he says, be aware, there is still sort of a, a, a reality of places of honor in the kingdom, a sort of bonus reward that's based on how you've lived your life. And he's using this as motivation, right? You don't want to be one of those people who, yes, you're saved, you're forgiven, but you sort of haven't really lived all that faithfully or obediently. You just sort of did your own sinful thing, and you're going to be sort of in a lower position of honor. No, it's appropriate and right to want one of those and desire one of those lofty positions of honor in the kingdom, to be honored by Christ, to be honored by God in that way. And so he's saying, so if you want a position like that, well, live a holy life. Right? God will reward those, those who live holy lives with those lofty positions of honor in the kingdom. And so he's sort of incentivizing living a holy life. I mean, we ought to do it first and foremost for the Lord out of love for him, but, but also just sort of further incentive to live a holy life is, hey, there's going to be a bonus reward in store for you. So live that holy life. So he goes on. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So what is he saying here, backing up, I know I read a few verses there, but to verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. The reality is the idea of being redeemed or ransomed with silver and gold is something that would have been familiar to his audience. Living in the Roman world, slavery was a reality. And if you were a slave, you were deemed property, but there was the reality that you could be ransomed, you could be redeemed, someone could pay a price to set you free from that enslavement. And so this is something that would have been familiar to them, the idea of, oh yeah, someone who is sort of enslaved, held captive, but then someone pays a price, gold, silver, and sets them free. In the natural thinking is sort of, and this is what he's picking up on, is sort of how would you respond to that if you were in that situation? Imagine you're enslaved and now somebody comes and pays this great price to set you free. You'd be filled with just such gratitude toward that person, a sense of indebtedness and I owe you and sort of like, what do you want? Whatever you want, like I'll do it for you just out of a sense of gratitude, the kindness you've shown me, I just want to respond in like kind. And Peter's saying, yeah, but here's the reality. You've been purchased with an immeasurably, infinitely greater price. The cost to purchase you from your enslavement to sin, you were enslaved to sin, and we were purchased out of that. We were ransomed. We were redeemed. And what was the cost for that? It was the very blood of Christ Jesus, God the Son, this infinitely greater price. With gold and silver, you'd still have that sense of, hey, whatever you want, I'm just indebted to you. I want to show my appreciation. But how much more so when it's the very blood of Christ where our response should be, God, I'm just so overcome with gratitude. Whatever you want, period, end of story. I'm indebted to you. I'll do it. And the response is, well, you know, he wants you to live a holy life. So that's the least you could do in a sense. He's paid this immeasurable price to set you free from sin. That's sort of the least you could do 
out of gratitude and a sense of appreciation is live the life that he's called you to do, to live that obedient, faithful, holy life. That's what, what Peter is saying here. And he goes on, verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, and here the language of obeying the truth, this is sort of obeying that call to respond with repentance and faith. He's saying here, by obeying the truth, he doesn't mean just obeying some random command. He's saying, you've come to saving faith in Christ. So you've been purified from sin, cleansed in the blood of Christ by coming to saving faith in, in Christ. And now what's the result? What flows out of that? Well, they're now a new creation in Christ with a new heart, new affections. And so what flows out of that, he says, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. And then he goes on, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God, right? You're a new creation now in Christ and you have a new heart, new affections. There's a new version of you. And so now as this new version of you, what should be happening? What should naturally take place? You have a new heart. You should be living in a new way. But now that you belong to Christ, right? You should be living with him as your master, obediently unto him, unto the Lord, living that holy faithful, pure life. And that involves, as he talks about, loving one another deeply. Verse 24, for all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And there he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses six and eight. And he goes on chapter two, therefore rid yourselves of all malice, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Right? He's using this imagery of this little baby, this newborn, and what do newborns crave? They crave milk. They let you know about it too. They will make sure you know they're hungry, they want to eat. They crave that milk. And he's using that imagery and saying in that same way that that newborn just yearns for, for that, that milk, and hungers for it, you should, should crave and yearn for a hunger for pure spiritual milk. And this pure spiritual milk is the word of God for biblical truth. And he goes on, right? He says, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it, as you soak up the word of God, as you just, you, you're just so overcome with God, who he is, you just want to run to his word and learn more about God and what he commands, what he expects, how we're to live our lives and so forth and so on. And as you dig into the word that you're craving after and, and you just want more of it, as you dig in, what's going to happen? The spirit's going to work and you're going to grow up, as he says, so that by it, you may grow up in your salvation. You're saved, but now maturing in that is what's being spoken of there. And he goes on, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this is a reference to Psalm 34, verse 8. And again, he's continuing with this imagery of sort of taste and milk and newborns and whatnot, sort of playing with that, that imagery. And he's saying, again, same thing, just as a newborn baby gets a taste of that milk and says, oh yeah, I, I like that, I would like some more, and wants more and more. He's saying, you, you've come to faith in Christ, you've, you've tasted of God, you've tasted of his goodness, his love, his grace, his mercy, and, and what should be the response is just to want more, to want more of the Lord, to want to draw closer to him, to want more of that pure spiritual milk and hunger and thirst after it and desire to just grow up in the faith and mature in the faith, grow in that holiness of character and conduct. And that's what he's speaking of there. And what we see here, I want to sort of zoom back out looking at this passage as a collective whole. It's easy to sort of dig into one verse at a time and sort of zoom in and lose sight of the bigger picture. 
But, but here we see Peter greatly concerned with this matter of living holy lives. He's writing here to these predominantly Gentile Christians in what is now northern Turkey in that region. And he realizes this is a priority for him, something he, Peter, wants to see. He wants to see these believers living the lives that they ought to live, these holy lives. And not only is that Peter's concern, but, but indeed it's the Holy Spirit's concern. It's God's concern. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is from the Lord. This is God's concern. He wants to see his people, and, and not just in northern Turkey 2,000-ish years ago, but for all believers, us included, he wants to see us living the lives that we were called to live. He wants to see us living holy, faithful, obedient lives. That God might be glorified, that he might be honored in our lives as we live obediently unto him. It's for his glory. Also, it's just part of his plan for us. Again, it's part of God's plan, not just to rescue us from the legal implications of sin, but to rescue us from sin in every way. It's not God's plan just to say, you know, because of sin, you're under judgment, wrath, but I'll solve that problem. I'll send my son to suffer, die, pay for your sin. And if you respond in repentance and faith, you'll be forgiven, saved. He did that, but it doesn't end there. It's not like now you're off the hook. Now you're forgiven, but I'm still going to leave you as the sinful wretch you are for all of eternity. That, that's not how the story goes. But he says, no, in, in every sense, I'm going to rescue you from your sin. And that's going to be not just from the legal implications of your sin and that judgment and wrath, but I'm going to deliver you and rescue you as well from the continued presence of sin in your life. And that's what God desires, but it's what's best for us as well. We don't want to go around forever and ever and ever still plagued by our sinful ways, sowing destruction and brokenness and devastation all around us. This is a gracious gift, right? He's saying, my plan for you is not just to stay the way you are forever, but rescued from, from the legal hold of sin over you. My plan is to deliver you from sin in every way, to purge you of the sin that still lingers, still remains over the course of this life ever increasingly. That's that whole sanctification process, growing in holiness and Christ-likeness over the course of our lives uh, ever ever increasingly. But then ultimately, when we die, we go to be with the Lord. That, that work is made complete, and we will be made perfect, truly perfect. And that is God's plan for us. And so this is something that God cares about. He cares deeply about. We ought to care about as well. Living holy lives, but not just living holy lives, but also growing in holiness as well. And so what I want for us, I want to move into application. I really want to get very specific as we think about this generally, of course, well, what's our application? Live a holy, obedient, pure life and grow in holiness, sort of progress in sanctification, grow in holiness. But it's easy to sort of say it and, okay, everybody, let, let's grow in holiness. And, yep, that sounds great. But, you know, I, I do better when I have something that's a little bit more of like an action item for me to do. I can go home. I can do that and tackle it. Rather, the more vague it is, it sort of it sounds good, but then you forget about it and you go back to your regular old ways and patterns. And so I want to give us a, a very specific challenge, and, and it's this. After we head home, you know, we'll end our service uh, in a little bit, and, and we'll have our time of fellowship. Then we'll head back to our, our own homes. Uh, and when you get back home, and it can be later today, it can be later on this week, but spend time in prayer and just ask God to open up your eyes and your heart to the sin that still remains in your life. And maybe for you, you're already aware and you're sort of thinking, yeah, I, I know one of my big sins that's still in my life, and, and, and I'm sure that's what God's going to want me to, to, to work on. But still, take the time to pray about it. Don't, don't assume you know. But for some of us, perhaps 
Maybe we just have blinders on and we just don't see some of the sin in our lives. That can be the case. You know, we just don't see it. Probably those around us see it and are aware of it. But, but for us, we're just sort of, you know, oblivious to that fact. And so take the time to go home after the service and really pray about this and say, God, I'm sure there's plenty of sin still remaining in my life. But, but what is it that, that still remains that you really want me to work on and make a priority and, and be rid of in my life? And, and be in prayer about that, you know, pray about it, not just once, but, but keep this in prayer throughout the week. And whatever God puts on your mind, puts on your heart, maybe it's one sin and God's saying, just Focus on one thing. Sometimes that's easier instead of trying to tackle 10 different different things and then uh, you don't sort of do any of it. Maybe God's saying, just work on this one thing. Or maybe he puts two two sins uh, on your mind or three or whatever it is. Whatever God puts on your mind, your heart, then resolve in the power of the Holy Spirit to be rid of that sin and instead now to live a a holy, upright, pure life in in that regard. And I want to emphasize the the, uh, committing yourself in the power of the Holy Spirit to being rid of that sin. Because if this is just some sort of human endeavor as though, oh, I, Steve, can just tackle whatever sin problem in my life I face, I'm not going to be successful, I'm going to fail. I might sort of try to cover up my sin a little bit for for a while, but ultimately if there's no real deeper heart change, that, that Same old sinful me is just ultimately going to come out. It's ultimately going to be a matter of the Holy Spirit's transforming power. If we want to grow, if we want to change, if we want to progress in sanctification, grow in holiness of of character, of of conduct, uh, it's going to be a matter of the Holy Spirit doing that transforming work on the inside, changing our, our very hearts, our souls, molding us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And so we need to do this prayerfully. As God lays something on our hearts, whatever that sin might be, yes, commit yourself to being rid of that, to living a, a holy life and, and growing in that way. But then continue to keep this in prayer just day after day. Let this be a part of your daily prayer routine where you're just coming before God and asking the Holy Spirit to continue to, to do that transforming work, to help you to grow in this area, to be rid of that sin. Uh, ask him to continue to do that wondrous transforming work. And, and, and whatever it is, whatever God puts on your mind, puts on your heart, uh, keep it before you some way. Maybe it's write it on an index card, whatever this thing is that God's put on your heart, whatever the sin is. Maybe it's you're quick to anger. Maybe it's uh, unforgiveness in your life toward somebody specific. Maybe it's just a, a lack of love toward your neighbor. Maybe it's telling little white lies, whatever it is. Write it down. Maybe put it in, in your Bible where you'll see it. I'm not saying you have to like put it on your refrigerator or like on a billboard for the whole world to see. You know, that way everyone driving by can, you know, you have a big sign out front. These are my sins, just so you know, and I'm keeping it before myself. You can keep it private to yourself, but, but in a place where you'll see it, where you'll sort of keep it before yourself on your mind, where day after day you can be focusing on this and, and, and coming before the Lord, bring it to him in prayer and just having it on your mind and seeking to grow in this regard. So don't, it's too easy to lose sight of something and forget about it. Keep it before you, put it somewhere where you're going to see it and, and just continue to, to work on it. But again, work on it in the power of the Holy Spirit because he's the one who's going to bring that transformation and if we really do this, if we, we make this a priority, if we say, you know, we want to live holy lives, we want to, to, to grow in, in faithfulness and, and obedience, we want to grow in that holiness of character and conduct, and if we really just are, are faithfulness application and, and, and do it and ask for the Holy Spirit to work and move mightily, 
He'll do that. He'll grow this church, each and every one of us as individuals, but collectively as a church, grow us in holiness, grow us in, in that sanctification process. And if we think of the outflow, first of all, there'll be blessing for us as, as we live faithful, obedient lives. There's going to be blessing that results from that. But even more importantly, God's just going to be wondrously glorified in our lives day after day after day as we're living that, that ever-increasingly holy and faithful and obedient life unto him. And I just want to give us, speak to one last point. I think if I look at New Hope Chapel, I think of us and I say, this is a church of mature believers. A lot of us have been Christians for decades. I don't look at this church and see glaring sins left and right. And I think it can be easy to sort of, as we talk about the topic of, of holy living, to say sort of, we could sort of take ourselves and compare ourselves to the average Christian and say, I'm doing pretty well. You know, we compare ourselves to others and I'm living a fairly obedient and faithful life, holy life. I'm not living in any sort of glaring sins. And it's all too easy to sort of then be content with where we are. It's sort of, I'm doing pretty well. So why put in the work? Why put in the effort? Uh, I, I'm happy with where I am. But I want us to see ourselves not from the perspective of comparing ourselves to somebody who's not as mature in the faith and not living as obedient or faithful or holy of a life, but sort of to see ourselves uh, from God's perspective, certainly as dearly loved children of his, but also recognizing that God sees each and every one of our sins and God hates sin. He despises sin. He loves us dearly, but he despises the sin that still hangs around within us. And I want us to sort of see ourselves that way. And as we look at our sin, even the things we might sort of minimize and say, that's a small sin. I want us to just be disgusted by the sin within us because that's the response God has towards sin. Uh, he is revolted by it. And we should look at ourselves and see the sin that remains and, and just say, I don't want that anymore. I don't want to keep living in that. I, I don't want to have that unforgiveness towards somebody. I don't want to be quick to anger and blow up on people. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you insert your same, I don't want that lust or this or that or greed or, you know, selfishness. I want to be rid of that. I, I want to live that holy and pure and upright life and, and better honor and glorify God day in and day out. And so I don't want us to sort of rather mature believers to say, this is for somebody else to do who's sort of newer to the faith. I'm already doing pretty well. But rather to look at ourselves and say, even if we're doing pretty well compared to others, there's plenty of sin that remains and not one bit of it is acceptable and okay. That's not how God sees it. He sees it as, as ugly sin and we should see it the same way and say, I just want to be rid of that. And again, just, just come before the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, work in mighty ways, transform me by your power that I might live that holy life ever increasingly that I'm called to for your glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that, that this is a mature body of believers. That's a blessing. That's a gift. But as I, I just mentioned, it can be easy to sort of just be content with that. We're doing pretty well. And just use that as an excuse to sort of stagnate and stay where we are. But help us to see our sin as an ugly thing, just as you see it. Though we are, of course, dearly loved by you. But to see that sin for what it is, to be repulsed by it, to say no more, it's not okay. To live out this challenge I gave to each and every one of us, to give us a faithfulness in that, to come before you, asking you to open up our eyes to our sin, and as you reveal it to us, just to commit ourselves to being rid of it in your power, Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own, but you can do anything, and you delight in changing our hearts, transforming us, molding us more and more into the likeness of you, Lord Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, just work.
work in mighty ways and grow this church in holiness, each and every one of us. And may we better honor and glorify you in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.